Welcome to episode 22 of the Empowering Ability Podcast. Welcome to the Empowering Ability Podcast, where we get you and your loved ones impacted by disability the information needed to live a full and meaningful life. Now, here's your host, Eric Gall. Hey, folks. Welcome back to the podcast. Thanks for joining us again today for another episode. And today we continue with the mini-series on housing for people with a disability, and this is part four of the mini-series. So uh, today I'm bringing you a really interesting story, and the flow of the podcast is a little bit different today because we have uh, many different people coming on the podcast to tell their version of their story and their lived experience. So uh, pretty excited to bring this to you, and I'll be introducing uh, these folks uh, along the way uh, as you listen to the podcast today. So you're going to get a, a bunch of different perspectives um, from people that uh, really brought this grassroots uh, effort to fruition. It's the story of Rougemont. Rougemont is a cooperative housing unit, and I'm going to bring into the podcast now Janet Cleese. Janet is the executive director uh, with the family support organization, the Durham Association for Family and Respite Services. Uh, and Janet's been uh, involved in the lives of people with disabilities and their families and allies in the community for over 30 years. She was a big part of the Diohago Support Network, and she served as their coordinator for over 20 years. Janet's also the author of three books, uh, one that we speak to specifically called We Come Bearing Gifts uh, in the podcast, and I'll include details on how to pick up her book or her books in the show notes of the podcast. Throughout her life, Janet's been deeply affected uh, by the lives of people with disabilities and their families, and this work is her life's passion. So here's Janet to tell the story of Rougemont and Diohago. The families of Diogo Support Network came together about over 25 years ago now when their sons and daughters were all in their late teens to um, late 20s um, and thinking about where their sons and daughters would live in the future. And um, they weren't sure exactly what they wanted, but they knew they wanted ordinary good life in ordinary neighborhood community um, situations. Um, and it's a little bit ironic. They looked around and guess what? There was a housing crisis at that time in this region. <laughs> so I think it always feels like a housing crisis. And I say that only because in the middle of crisis, there's always opportunity. And so they looked around and um, one of the opportunities that they came across is at that time, the federal and provincial governments were funding what was called cooperative housing. Co cooperative housing is a very, very Canadian model, by the way, where uh, people come together. They don't own, for the most part, they uh, they don't own their own units, but they are um, seen to be kind of permanent tenants of those units, uh, permanent members of the co-op, um, as long as they follow the rules of the co-op. So it's much more secure housing um, than any other uh, kind of model. And the families saw in that model the opportunity for their sons and daughters to be really fully involved in their own neighborhood and community because cooperatives are run by a board uh, of members of the co-op and they kind of make all the decisions about who's the management company and how does the maintenance get done and, and how does the social life of the community work. So there's built in some attention paid to a social life. So the families um, were interested in this idea and there was a piece of land available or 
and and what they ended up doing is um, they got a little bit of a grant to hire a cooperative development company, and that company helped them kind of conceive and pull, put in an application for a housing cooperative, and they put in an application for a 105-unit um, housing cooperative with the idea that their seven sons and daughters would move into that cooperative, living in all different parts, not as a group, but individually, one one person at a time. And they were told that there was an eight to nine year wait list at the time for that housing. But while they were waiting in that first few months, even, um, there was a call that there, the federal government had put an end to housing dollars um, in the sector, and there would be no more cooperatives funded. There was enough money in the bucket to fund one more in all of Canada. And they started looking, and I guess there were 10 applications um, in front of theirs, and theirs was the most complete, the most ready to go, and I like to think that's the dedication of families. Um, and so it was funded. So this was the last uh, federal government, um, federal provincial government funded cooperative in Canada. Now we're hopeful for more at this point, but mm-hmm. at this at that time it, they were the last. And um, in... Um, I'm going to get the year wrong now, 1993, uh, the the cooperative was built, you know, and I was a hired a, a year before that uh, to kind of help uh, think through support and whatnot. But the co-op was built 105 units on six levels um, at the edge of Pickering, kind of Pickering Scarborough area. So for many uh, um Places in Canada, certainly in Ontario, that sounds like a very, very large building. For that area of the world, it's it's really in keeping with all of the others. And it's built right at the edge of uh, one of the tributaries of the Rouge River. So it's got a beautiful protected ravine area behind it. It's on major bus routes. Um, so it's a really well-situated uh, place. After 25 years, it's still very, very beautiful. Um, members do the upkeep, uh, the gardens and whatnot gorgeously. And the idea was always that this would be a place that would have a mixed and diverse um, community in it that would would really try to replicate people in Durham region wanting and looking for good places to live. And so right from the beginning, there were seniors and younger people. There were families and single people, uh, couples, um, people of all the different ethnocultural backgrounds that you would expect to find that close to Toronto and as a part of Durham. Um, so really, really well represented. And into that, you know, was kind of a seven people, which is well even per- below the, the typical percentage. And then on top of that, there were a couple of other people with physical uh, disabilities um, that were in the co-op. And so we were always aiming for no more than 10% of the people in the co-op would just naturally um, have a disability. That seems to be a good percentage um, to aim for in any population. That would be the natural kind of occurrence. So mm-hmm. we wanted to mirror that. Um, with a lot of thinking to um, people right from the beginning wanted to create what they were what these families were calling an intentional community so the families of those folks with disabilities were the founding board and after the first year they came off the board and the co-op membership voted in its own members as the board so the families were hugely influential around the shape and the size and and really the culture of the building uh, but they most of them did not live in the co-op so they weren't eligible for board and, and handed it over to the rest of the community, as I think is right and good. And then the families really uh, p- turned their attention to how would their sons and daughters live in the co-op in the rest of the community? How would they be supported? And they created a Diohago Support Network, which is um, a family uh, group and a group of families who um, 
kind of think are thoughtful about um, uh, bringing about both the natural and the paid supports for people in their full lives. Today, there's a lot of conversation around community, and there's different definitions for community. And Janet mentioned uh, creating an intentional community, and Diohago really focused on creating that intentional community at Rougemont. So here's Janet to talk about intentional community and how they defined intentional community, how they created it uh, within the Rougemont building uh, with the founding members of Diohago. Um, well, there's uh, all kinds of things written about intentional community. For for us in the, the early years of um, Rougemont, it really was um, uh, people uh, putting some thought and attention to how they would like to live in their community and kind of setting a positive expectation about that. So in Rougemont, we said that people would be good neighbors to one another. And it was something very short and simple. And we kind of massaged that all of the time. So people would look for ways to be good neighbors to one another. And still to this day, 25 years on, I can walk down those halls and I'll see uh, one of the men uh, bringing some furniture um, up the elevator for one of the older uh, people who live there. I'll see someone bringing something in a covered dish to another neighbor. Um, I see uh, doorways that all have wreaths and um, uh, objects on them, decorative objects, and nobody um, steals them, right? So what is it that people do to uh, kind of take care of the whole building as their neighborhood, right? right. And so... That just takes, uh, you know, you continually talk about it, you hold up um, examples of it. There are uh, quarterly general meetings, and it's not unusual at those general meetings for some people to stand up and say, I'd like to thank so-and-so for, you know, so Brenda, one of the supported people at one point, um, really likes uh, things to be neat, so likes to pick up bits of litter and garbage and stuff across the flower beds. And at one of the meetings, someone stood up and said, I just want to say I saw Brenda out in the heat the other day, and I really appreciated that, right? Mm. And so there's that culture that's developed where acts of neighborliness um, are appreciated and noticed, and people think that's the part of that's the way they come to live together. Mm-hmm. They're celebrated. Yeah, and in the beginning, I think we thought that we would choose people to live there based on their interest in doing this, and what we discovered over time is that. Because it's a lovely building in a convenient place in its community, lots of people wanted to live there and they could care less about the intentional neighborhood piece of it. So they could um, sell us a good line about, oh, yeah, 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 and have no intention of really, really keeping up to it. But the people in the co-op who are the steady Uh, the steady people who have lived there for a long, long time, I would say a third to half the people, you know, are so persistent in a lovely and gentle way that it, um, it changes people. So people in their first year might not contribute much at all, you know, and in their second year, they kind of, kind of start to get in the swing of it. And after they've lived there for a bit, it becomes their natural way. So I I just find that fascinating. So it really takes a core of people to hold that as a, um, a value um, and and be very, very committed to it. Um, and it just seems to bring other people um, mm-hmm. along. People buy into that culture. Yeah. yeah. Like in an organization. Exactly. Right? Exactly. Really yeah. Now, I had the opportunity to visit 
Rougemont and meet some of the great people that founded Diohago, uh, original uh, first people that moved into Rougemont. And uh, it was a fantastic experience. So I'm going to bring into the podcast Linda Daw. So Linda was really one of the people that was the driving force to making Rougemont happen and creating Diohago. And we're going to hear Linda's perspective on creating intentional community. And this is someone that's lived it for 25 years. And you'll also hear the community around us in this uh, clip with Linda. Uh, you'll hear the kids playing in the background. And you might be able to pick up uh, Tiffany. So Tiffany Daw, Linda's daughter, one of the seven sons and daughters that uh, moved into, into Rougemont. And Tiffany really touched my heart. Just such a caring, compassionate, and, and loving and friendly person. So here's Linda. Well, you know, I, I, I think we, we get stuck on the words intentional community. And we make it... Um, and to so to me it's uh intentional community is just kind of a way of saying we want to go back to the the days when community seemed simpler and more accessible um but um but that but at, you know for a period of time what we did was to expect something very grand when we said intentional community oh it's this grand thing and people would you know, think, well, you go to Rouge Mountain, you're going to see all this magnificent community things happening uh, in front of your face. And, and it's not like that at all. It's, it's, um, it's just people living well together and being, um, um, and hanging on to that idea that we can be in relationship to one another in all kinds of positive ways, despite all the difficult things that can happen. And there are very difficult things, like over the years um, within this community that we've had to deal with. And and there is a kind of a propensity for people when things get difficult to say, oh, you know, our intentional community isn't working. But the fact that you're able to work through the difficulty tells you that your community's working. And so sometimes it's. Um, uh, uh, people uh, want to see these very wonderful things um, very obviously all the time and if those things aren't happening then it's the community's not working but um, the, I think the community's really working well when it can deal with its difficulties as well as its good times right one of the things that we thought was a, was important to have exist within our community was was diversity, was the idea of people from different backgrounds and cultures and beliefs, and and that and that uh, that would that was the part of the intentionality in that people people would have you know many different ways of express expressing the idea of of creating and experiencing community, and that. That was that was part of it was that diversity, but it wasn't it wasn't um, the idea that we would have particular groups that would then help one another out. And I th I think the 
The uh, other part of um, that we were very conscious of was that when our sons and daughters moved into the community, that they would, uh, we, we saw um, people making the effort to live well together as, as a responsibility, and within that there would be contributions that would be made. But we saw our sons and daughters taking on that same responsibility and making those same contributions. So there wasn't an expectation that they would move into Rougemont and the immunity of Rougemont would kind of look after them. It was the idea that they would share that responsibility with everybody else that lived in the co-op. And I think that um, it's um, that's been more than evident in terms of... Uh, the kinds of contributions within the community that our sons and daughters have made over time. They, I think, are on an equal basis with, with any other people that live in the community. I would just add that for us, the diversity came first, and then the feeling that the community would grow from that diversity. Mm-hmm. And, and so there was a, we thought that people would come from a whole range of education backgrounds, yeah. that some people would be paying market rent uh, rates, right. and some people would have subsidized mm-hmm. rates. So there'd be economic diversity. Some people would, you know, have um, a physical disability, <laughs> and other people wouldn't. Some people might have some intellectual limitations, and other people wouldn't. But you needed that full range um, so that you know people can really give of their best contributions. Mm-hmm. So you have some people who can drive cars, some people who do own cars, some people who have traveled Europe and all over the place to add the richness of their experience Mm -hmm. to other people. And when I think of a community where it's only seniors and people with disabilities, uh, people try to say, oh, well, they they help each other out. And and sure, they do, but it's a much narrower life Mm -hmm. than if you had the the broadness of Mm -hmm. that range. And so, you know, I think the challenge is for people to uh, forget about the intentional community until you are sure that you're in a truly diverse community. And then the richness would come through. There's lots that you just discover in that kind of diversity that enables you to be to make more contribution or just learn and grow. And it's um, you know there's there's a, a an inherent challenge in a very diverse community. Um, not so much now. We're all kind of like. We're all kind of used to one another <laughs> in some respects. Yeah. But um, I can remember in the beginning, and there was, like, we used to have these huge parties, and and they were very Canadian <laughs> parties. But we had this very diverse community, and it was like, it was almost like they were not used to these kinds of parties yeah. and uh, or this kind of music. And we learned to even that yeah, out over the that, years, yes. right? So, yeah, so, yeah, and it, and it's, uh, yeah, it's just, and everybody can participate in that. So it's not like you're restricted in any way, because mm-hmm. when you have diversity, you have lots of ways of figuring things out. Uh, and 23 years later, um, we're, we're, we still have, uh, I think a, a really good example of people living well together, and that's really what we're talking about. And so, um, but I think um, it, it requires um, a certain kind of effort, and um, and and lots of consciousness. That even to be conscious when you're thinking, oh, things aren't working 
very well right now or things aren't quite going the way they should be going in our community. Just that being conscious of that and, uh, uh, but understanding that we can work through that and we can even things out so that the community just looks like a good place to live. So there we heard from Linda Daw and Janet Lees on intentional community and what it means at Rougemont. And simply, you know, what I take away from that is it breaks down to being good neighbors, right, at its simplest form. And Diohago, the founding members of Diohago, holding a set of values and really just with that intention of people living well together, uh, again, and being good neighbors, hearing diversity coming first, uh, you know, a, starting with a diverse community, not just a group grouping two different groups of people, such as people with disabilities and seniors. Jan shared uh, with me that it isn't just a building, it's a mindset of the people. And people have come to Rougemont to learn about intentional community and, and how uh, intentional community is set up at, at Rougemont, how it's worked over the years. And they've taken that model or that idea of intentional community and brought it into neighborhoods with single family homes. They've brought it into condo buildings. So it's not just something that uh, can only be created within a co-op or within Rougemont. Uh, it's a mindset that can be carried and brought into uh, your neighborhood. So uh, I think that's really important to share. Now, Rougemont uh, has four hours of contribution uh set as a guideline for for members um so four hours a month so uh here's janet talking a little bit about that contribution that is uh kind of expected of of the members of the community yeah so uh, lots of co-ops have this designation and in many co-ops it just dies out or it's done very very grudgingly and so uh, within Rougemount, um, they also wanted, it's a way for people to get to know each other, for people to make a contribution. So it's kind of like a shaped contribution. And it was for all members. And it wasn't that the members of the co-op, the rest of the members would make their contribution toward the disabled people. It's not that at all. Everyone made it toward the life of the co-op. And so you could sit on the board, you could water the flowers, you could sit on a committee, you could be involved in social events, but you had to put in your four hours. And I think what Rougemont did a little differently, and Linda Daw is one of the founding families of uh, Rougemont and Diohago, and also is a, a member who chose to live at the co-op. And she's an amazing community builder. And uh, she was very, very good at recognizing much more subtle ways of people helping each other. So um, I remember her telling me at one point there was a woman who kind of people were whispering about and accused that, you know, she wasn't a very good neighbor. You know, what did she do? You never saw her at meetings. You don't see her at social events and everything. And what Linda knew was that every evening she went to this neighbor down the hall who had some medical difficulties and checked on her and assisted her uh, into her bed. Right. And that went on for several years. And so Linda was able to bring that forth to the co-op saying, you know, we don't have to kind of shed a big light on this. But in fact, these two neighbors are doing the intentional community good neighbor um, work that we want to have done anyways. It's just in a different way. So this gives us a really good idea of the thought and the methodology behind intentional community. And we're going to bring onto the podcast 
Shirley Brown. And Shirley is one of the first uh, people that moved into the Rougemont community. And uh, she's known as one of those people that, uh, you know, helps to hold up those values of intentional community. So we're going to hear from Shirley on what intentional this intentional community actually looks like in action at Rougemont. Here's Shirley. It's very good living in here. I I, I love it. And um, it's it's just, um, I do feel um, at home, you know, comfortable living here. It's not like, you know, you live in some places and you're scared of going downstairs or something like that. Just feel at home. I, I think this is my home anyway. I treat it like my home. But um, it's like um, if somebody knows that you're not feeling well, they would call you up and they would ask, um, can I go to the supermarket? Do you need anything out, out there at the store? Or do you need me to make something for you? Or do you want to, you need to go to the doctor or something like that? They would ask this kind of question. And I think that's very, very good because people care, you know, and if they don't see you, they would ask someone for you. Oh, I don't see this person. Um, you know, for uh, what happened, and they would say, oh, but maybe she's not feeling well, and they say, so how come she didn't call, or how come I didn't know anything about this? So these are the things that I find that this is what you're saying here, you know, you just people care, you know, care about each other. And I also find that people who move in here before, that they didn't have no idea about what this community is all about. They change for the better. Like there are people who move in here, younger people, and they had, um, they had an anger problem, and they had a problem with, um, I think, living with people. And as they, and the longer they live in Rougemont, is the calmer they get, and the more uh, mature I, I find that they get, and they just love their community. And oh, you know, this is my place, and you know, I wanted to keep clean and you know these are the things that I would see over the years with people who oh when they came in they were just this awful person <laughs> you know well, they, yeah and, and their their life experience was not and, that yes, positive right and, yeah so, so they come in here and they see how you know people live and they change totally they go to school they get a skill things that they were doing before they cut that kind of lifestyle and they have you know this they are more mature and they see that people are living inside here who decent people who's living properly are living whatever and they they change and it's like they're not going anywhere seems you know yeah i think it's different because it's there are so many different people living inside here from different nationality or different background and i think um you know when I think this is what happened. They come in here and they see people living, loving, you know, lovingly, or they see um, you care about the garden or you care about how the building looks and you care about the kids. You're having programs, you know, if they want, they have programs that they can get involved with. And I think that just caring, just say, okay, you know, I have, there are things that I can do, actually do. Now we're going to hear from Donna Mitchell. And Donna is one of the uh, original seven sons and daughters uh, that moved into Rougemont. And Donna shares with us how she contributes to the community and provides a real value-added contribution 
And she also shares how other people in the community have supported her over the years. So here's Donna. I'm involved with the co-op by helping people out when they need it. Like when Kel's away, I do the drop-in. I don't mind doing it. Drop-in is where a lot of people from Hoosman come down for tea and coffee. We chat. There's one one member in here brings the paper. People read the paper. We bring coffee. We chat. We do all kinds of things. Um, I sometimes help Tiffany out when Linda needs it. I don't mind doing it. I'm always there, right? Uh, we have uh, Saturdays. We have a dinner with Kel. Linda and Tiffany sometimes. And Tiffany is here. Um, and when she's not here, we still have dinner together. I take turn. Carol does. And then Tiffany will be doing when, when she's here. I used to, when Carol was working, was it Stan the family? I got now. I made her a meal so she doesn't have to come home from work and cook. So I made her macaroni and cheese with with her cheese because she can't have regular milk. Or um, meatloaf with diff- with vegetables in it with vegetables. I would make a meal if someone is sick. If I know someone that's sick, if I hear, oh, someone's sick, like... A couple weeks ago, my church gave me some flowers, so I gave them to a member on the second floor that had their, bon- is it Bonnie or? Oh, Bonnie. Bonnie, yeah. her sister, had a leg trampolated, so the church gave me flowers, so I gave them the flowers to her sister. Matthew is my son. Okay. Gant was my coach. <laughs> um... How did people at Rougemont help you when he was growing up? Help? (laughs) With? (laughs) Matthew? Help me with Matthew? I'll see. Yeah. When did you call on me mostly? When Matthew was... Little. Little, but when he was sick, right? Yeah, when he was sick. Yeah, because I was the nurse, right? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So recently, like, me, when I get sick... It's not easy when I get sick. When the heart goes, Linda was there. She came to the hospital, stayed overnight with me, and I offered her to bagel because, and she didn't want it. But I have a lot of people support me. I work. I work at a gym just down the street from me. So when I first showed up at Rougemont, Donna was one of the first people to greet me as I walked in the door, uh, not knowing or having an idea who I was. Um, and it was it was quite awesome. A uh, super friendly person, uh, very loving, and uh, really able to express herself. And uh, according to Shirley Brown, uh, it wasn't always, this wasn't always the case with Donna. So here's Shirley talking about how Donna has grown into the woman that she is today. No, when um when I met when I when I met Donna, she was a little bit shy, you know, shy, not you know, not speaking, and she didn't really um, you know, warm up to people too much. 
but I find she um she has matured so much, you know, and um you can have a conversation with her, you know, and you can any conversation you 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 have with her, she can communicate with you. I find that, you know, and she's um she's more open now, you know. She, she talk about Matthew, yeah. you know, and you ask her about Matthew, and you know, what I find too with um. Um, with 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 the kids in here, we have a lot, a lot of kids that grow up inside here. Generation, and what I find with the kids that grew up here, um, everyone was allowed to, if there's if they see that them they're doing something, everybody is a parent. Everybody would say, "Well, how is school? Are you not supposed to do that? You're not supposed to do whatever." The other day, Matthew was riding with his friend in the um in the thing, yeah. and I said to him, "I said, Matthew." And he said, yeah, yeah, I know. <laughs> so, but, you know, they grew up here. And I think if you should ask these people, they're now, now married and have kids and things like that. But I think if you should ask them about living in Rougemont, they would give you a total different. I think it makes them different. And I don't know how different, but out there in the world, I think they, they communicate with people more or they understand like togetherness more. And most of these kids, most of them, they grew up and they are, they marry, they have kids, they, or they have a job and, you know, they're doing really, really good. So I think that's kind of togetherness where, you know, um, and, and people know that they're safe. Like the school is around there, but when they come from school, they, um, they can stay in their apartment until their parents come home because they know that it's a safe community. So what I'm taking away from my time at Rougemont is it really provides this safe space for uh, people to grow into uh, their potential and not just people with a disability, but for everybody in that community. And what really supports that is the values held up by the founding uh, members of Rougemont. And looking at, you know, what makes this work? What makes Rougemont tick in so I, I thought about this and I deconstructed it down to the fundamental pieces, which why I think it works. And it all starts with a common understanding of each other, of each individual person in that community and getting to know them. And through that understanding, building trust and forming respect. And then from there, it just comes from showing love in small little ways, just helping each other out in little ways that doesn't mean much to me in terms of you know my effort in terms of helping out but means a lot to another person and recognizing and celebrating how people are, are helping each other and being good neighbors so um, we're going to introduce one more person uh, to the podcast and that's Sarita now Sarita is Tiffany's uh, supporter and uh, she gives her perspective on different places she's lived in different places she's visited and shares how Rougemont is different. I want to mention uh, I am working with Tiffany. I am support Tiffany for almost three years, but I found this, um, this place, Rougemont, the building is amazing place. Um, I have, I have been living in Toronto in condos for 10 years and the difference is big, big, the difference to living in one of these buildings in Rougemont because I noticed people else helping between them is taking care 
is doing different activities, uh, dinners, uh, breakfast, games, different activities, helping with the with the gardener, and and it's amazing to know. Uh, to see mm -hmm. how they helping when they are sick or or they can see mm -hmm. often so all of this mm -hmm. is good uh, mm -hmm. for living community now i also want to acknowledge tiffany da so tiffany welcomed me into the building she welcomed me into her apartment guided me around showed me all of her beautiful artwork gave me a magnificent gift of some of her uh, custom cards with prints of, of her artwork on the cards so i'm super grateful uh, for that and tiffany made me feel super welcome uh, coming into the building she she guided me around and during the podcast recording uh, with all the lovely people that have uh, spoken with us so far uh, tiffany sat there the whole time and and held my hand and made me feel welcome. She made me feel like I was a part of Rougemont. So, so thank you, Tiffany, for, for showing me that love and making me feel super welcome. Now we're going to bring back in Janet Cleese. And Janet is going to share her observations, her learning, and what she's deconstructed from what really worked with Diohago at Rougemont and what has made it successful. So here's Janet. Um, I think first and foremost was the family's dedication to really uh, supporting and shaping and holding a really typical community. And there was great consciousness right from the beginning that uh, people would always be like 10% or less in the co-op. And without um, hard and fast rules, they have managed to um, uh, influence through conversation all subsequent membership committees who would then select new members for the co-op. And to a great extent, you understand that, uh, you know, there would be lots and lots of people with disabilities probably asking to be parts of the co-op as it became well known, but really wanting to uh, the whole community to understand it's the diversity of the co-op that makes it work, right? And it's the fact that people are... Uh, the people with disabilities have other contributions to make, but um, it would best work if if they kind of uh, paid attention to uh, a certain number of people and not more than that. And that has been kind of followed for over 20 years. So their communication on that has been really, really good. The second thing is we really had enough time. I was hired a year before and we had lots of conversation that, th that we would be at the starting end of a good life in this neighborhood, this community co-op neighborhood. And, um, what were things that if we did right from the beginning, we would never regret. So some of the things that we kind of thought about is we really didn't want all of the people to live on one floor or one wing or two parts of the building. We really wanted people to be dispersed up the building. And that's because we understood through the SRV again, the SRV um, framework that we kind of work through, that if people were all in one wing or all in one place, that we would really qu quickly have created an us and them situation. It would be those people with disabilities, those folks over there. And I think one of the things that I feel most proud of, one of the big successes of the co-op is that lots of the people, the members of the co-op who have lived there for many years probably couldn't accurately tell you all seven people who belong to Diohago. Because, you know, other people may appear to have some support in their lives or have a different kind of disability. And, and we're just really, really low profile. 
right? So we decided right from the beginning we would be very low profile, uh, that people would be sprinkled, that people would be known by their interests and their other identities, not by their disability. Again, not to deny that people have a disability, it's very much a part of who they are, but it's not the only thing that people would know about them, and it's not the common ground that people would have, right? Mm -hmm. So we really... We worked on, so where people lived was really important. Uh, right from the beginning, uh, we helped um, new support workers to um, be thoughtful in how they introduced themselves when they were asked. So they would be accompanying someone around the co-op and I might be walking with Tiffany and we taught people to do this. People would say, oh, hi, who are you to the, me as a support person? And I would say, oh, I'm Janet. So we taught people to identify themselves simply by name, not by, I'm Janet, a support worker, or I'm not Janet, you know. Right. There was no need to attach a title. Absolutely. So I'd say, I'm Janet. The second thing we taught them to do is to then distract, move the attention back to the person themselves, because they were the, the steady, anchored person in the co-op, and I was the support person who might come and go, right? So I'd say, I'm Janet. I'm hanging out with Tiffany today. Uh, Tiffany's on her way to the art gallery. Did you... Did you know she was an artist? You should see the art in her apartment, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so we taught people to do that. And it was really lots of fun because, you know, um, and it's not that we were trying to fool people that people weren't getting paid support or whatever. What we were trying to do is to put the focus on the person and their common interests, helping people uh, find out interesting things. Over the course of time, they would see me with Tiffany enough that they would understand that I was there in a paid support role. But by then, it wasn't the most important thing about Tiffany, right? So she wasn't seen as a client first, she was seen as a member of the co-op who happens to be an artist and, you know, clearly has a disability. Right. But it's not the most important thing about her. So I think we did the introductions right. We did the place and the, the people. They chose where they wanted to live. We just kind of shaped that a little bit. And then when um, new committees were starting, new things were starting in the co-op, uh, we were really, we did lots of conversations among the families. So when the gardening committee started, we said, you know, who might want to join the gardening committee? Well, uh, Tiffany did and Brenda did and Rob did. And, you know, Jonathan was maybe a little bit interested. And we said, you know, again, if four out of eight members of the gardening committee are people with disabilities, you know, that's an awkward it's hard to do the relationship thing. So let's think about it. And and after we thought it through, we we said, you know, uh, Rob's really interested in this other thing. And Tiffany has a, a community garden opportunity. And Brenda's a little bit of a home body who doesn't like to get out very much. It would be easiest. This would be the easiest gardening interest follow up for Brenda. So let's leave it for Brenda. Right. And so that's how we did triage around all of the grouped kinds of things. So we were just trying to keep people separate and different. And then another thing we did was the families decided that we wouldn't share supporters. And one of the reasons for that was we didn't want people to see uh, Janet with Tiffany and then Brenda. And it really just helps people to see, oh, they're all the same. You know, if you're always with this, the, the, all the people with disabilities are with the same supporters. Oh, they're, they're the same kind of people rather than saying different people need different kinds of support. And then the final thing is we agreed, even in a crisis, that we wouldn't group people for support. So if there's a snowstorm and Tiffany's worker can't come in, we don't 
ship Tiffany down to Brenda's. We don't bolt Brenda over to, to Tiffany's. Um, we figured out in advance what are the layers of other people that could come forward. Because again, we really wanted people to have their own unique and individual lives. Out of that group of seven, Tiffany and Brenda actually have the most natural relationship. Um, and Donna and Tiffany to some extent, but the rest really are casually friendly as neighbors will be, but aren't great friends, right. you know, and, and it's easy to create friendship among people with disability. What's a lot harder and where we paid our attention was how would we create um, relationship with the rest of the world? Mm-hmm. There's a lot of families looking at housing. Um, and I really love the quote that you, you provided, um, a little bit earlier in the podcast, in the middle of crisis, there's always opportunity. Mm -hmm. I think that's a a, a beautiful quote. And um, this book and the story, I think, gives a lot of um, inspiration and hope for families that feel like they're in Mm -hmm. this crisis. And in the book, you talk about, um, I think it was 10 families that started off, um, you know, thinking about what that solution might look like for yeah. their, their sons and daughters. Um, and in the book, you're very clear about those people just being ordinary people. Mm-hmm. Can you touch on that a little bit? Yeah. I mean, um, I, I think that uh, families have been shaped over a century to believe that their kids are special and special kids need special solutions, which are best provided by services run by other people. Like that's the bill of goods that's kind of around and, and it was sold in the form of institutions and then it was sold in the form of group homes and day services often. And, um, what I've been a part of, um, certainly, um, a, a spark that I might have had fanned by the families of Diohago that ordinary people allow to think outside of that belief. Um, actually know what is good and right for their family as their, their whole family member. And what they want is a typical ordinary life. And so that's what, you know, if you put the programs and services aside and give a, a little bit of support, uh, that's what they end up designing. And the families of Diohago, they had it right from the beginning and be- we began to articulate it more and more in the latter uh the latter years in that book, I think by set, year seven, we had it down in writing, but a set of principles that guided them. So it's a principled organization that said, uh, good life happens in these ways, and we're going to follow this path, right? And it's the path of kind of inclusion and intentional community and what is good and right for one person is good and right for another, rather than special people need special things, right? Now, Janet's taken the lessons that she's learned with Diohago and her experience at Rougemont over 20 years. And she's taken those lessons and shared them, shared them across Durham region and really shared them across the world to help individuals with disabilities live a good life and to help other people build intentional communities where people with disabilities have the opportunity opportunity to live what we would consider an ordinary life, an ordinary life in community. So here's Janet to talk about how she's really taking these practices and how you can take these practices and apply them uh, for the life of an individual with a disability to help them live an ordinary life. Now, I really want your listeners to understand that this isn't um, 
these aren't just historical lessons and you kind of think, oh, 25 years ago, you could do that. But, you know, today we're in another situation, um, a difficult housing situation in Ontario, for sure. And anything that touches uh, the Toronto area, <laughs> absolutely, for sure. And in my new role with the Durham Association for Family Respite Services, uh, we've ju- we're just completing a two-year housing project. And so can I talk a little bit yeah, about yeah, that? Yeah, with the Housing Task Force, right? Yes, yeah. yeah. So sure through the Housing Task Force, we were awarded one of their um, projects. Uh, there were only 18 funded, so we were thrilled to kind of do this. And I think to great extent, um, through my experience, and one of our coordinators, housing coordinators, is Helen Dion, who is one of the founders of um uh, Rouge Mount. So with our combined experiences, our go-to was to kind of think in the same kind of ways and really thinking in the midst of this housing crisis, people are still finding housing. People are moving every single day. And uh, if we be, just went forward, the, the title of our proposal is housing is a community issue. So it's not a disability issue. It's a community issue. And what are the ways that all kinds of people are looking for um, and, and finding ways um, to to build, to buy, to rent, um, uh, to figure out housing? And why couldn't some of those ways suit the families who are looking for opportunities? And uh, so our project was really quite um, minimal. We worked with, um, uh, we partnered with uh, an organization called uh, Brockville and District um, Association for Community Involvement in Brockville, who had similar outlook on life. And uh, so they hired two part-time coordinators, and so did we. And what we went about is we brought families together and said, we have no money at all. Do you want to come and talk about housing? And in Durham region, um, 30 families have gathered together to talk about housing with no money on the table. I think that's absolutely fascinating. And over, it shows how important, how issue important is it is and how understanding families are that they are going to be part of the solution. That they are not, we just said this isn't even an MCSS issue. It doesn't really belong at the Ministry of Community and Social Services. It belongs with housing. And mostly the issues that are faced with uh, families with a disability, families with a family member with a disability, it really is um, affordability issues, not disability because even if people need uh, renovations and accommodations in their housing, the reason people don't do it is a cost issue, not anything else, right? And so uh, we really need to ally ourselves with all of the people that are struggling for housing, you know, across Ontario, across Canada. And in the midst of that, there are things like Habitat for Homes. There's things like um, options for homes in, in the Toronto area that helps uh, more affordable ownership happen. There's all kinds of stuff happening in ordinary housing sector that uh, our families didn't know anything about. And so what we we, we brought, uh, the, the other coordinator has real estate background. So we've got, you know, Helen with intentional community background. We have Kim with her um, real estate background. And we started to explore. We brought in people to talk about different kinds of financing. We brought in people to talk about equity co-ops and other forms of social housing. Uh, Families came together and we had a night where everyone took one area of kinds of ways that we knew housing was being built, co-housing cooperatives. They did research, made posters and came together for an evening and shared their learning with each other. Uh, People talked a lot about renovations. And one family says, you know, I renovated 
our uh, a second apartment into our home. So our son, even though he still lives with us, has some separate space. And then when he got support, the support could be separate. And he has a much more typical adult lifestyle than when he lived with us. And lots of families were thinking, oh, well, that's that's a good idea. That's a, you know, with limited funds, that's a really smart next step, right? So over the course of our project, we have had um, six families either move to a home with a second apartment or create one in their home. Um, so major steps. Some people have done that as a forever thing. They think that's exactly how they'd like their family to live into the future. And some families have said, we just like it, get a taste of what it feels like to live separately. We think this is a step toward a home of his own. And maybe we can sell our place and afford something at that point in time. So they're again, they're in charge of what the next steps might be. And, um, 12 families got together and said, you know, whenever, whenever we try to talk to builders or whatever, and we're just one or two families or we're just loosely connected, they're not taking us really seriously. So let's incorporate. So we have this brand new incorporated family group called the Intentionally Built Community. And what they are, they're an entity that is going to partner with builders in order to build when they're doing big builds that they will keep in mind uh, two or three units for people with disabilities in a larger build um, and talk about how to make those units, the whole building, but those units in particular, affordable. Right. And so and we have people being really creative about one family is talking about selling a larger family home and maybe they'll have money for two down payments on two condos that will be in the same building. And when they no longer can be there or pass away, uh, their their daughter will be well established in the building. Right. Mm -hmm. So all of these creative, creative ideas um, that uh, families are just working away on. And the change really comes when they think that it is their issue to work on. They understand they have different kinds of sets of assets. And that's not to say that this is affordable for everyone. So they do have some clear asks, right? And they they would really like to see uh, portable housing subsidies. So you can have a housing subsidy by moving into social housing, but it's not the neighborhood that everyone wants because that's not where they grew up or they have their connections. So if people could have portable subsidies and add that to a, a regular rent, they could really open up where they might live in their community. Mm -hmm. uh, if families with less means could have access to some um, renovation dollars and they could renovate a second apartment into their home, which actually um, contributes to the housing stock in the whole community. So when that family moves on or whatever happens, um, there's a two, per, uh, you know, two dwellings within one house available. Um, some of the families are saying, you know, in the fullness of time, I'm going to leave my house to my son. He can move into the main section and he can rent out the other apartment. Um, so there could be a paying tenant, but hopefully a friendly paying tenant, but a paying tenant that might look after um, taxes and other costs. Mm -hmm. You know, so we've just had a, 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 a plethora of, um, of creative ideas. Um, created through this project. Yeah, I love the approach that you've taken, really um, embodied that theme of how housing is a community issue. Yeah. And you haven't just sat in your office and thought about, okay, what's the best yeah. solution? It's, yeah. you know, let's engage families yeah. and let's get some ideas out yeah. and um, let's all take some ownership in this. Yeah. And I, I think it's really smart to look at it as a, like you said, a housing issue, yeah. not you know, a disability 
Well, and, and one of the things that happens is when it's done within MCSS, what they are, they provide services and resources and supports, right? Um, but if they're in charge of housing, they build the residential services, right? And so we need to keep those things separate. A house is, you know, you it, it might work for a time, but then you can you sell it and you've got an asset. Whereas in a in a service, you've got a place in that service, and then they might move you to another place where there's a vacancy. It's a whole other ball game. Families only have to think about their own son or daughter and what works best, right? Right. But we have to make that more affordable. So we held a very very vibrant housing forum just this week, and we had over seventy people come out. Um, oh my goodness, the room was a buzz. But I wanted to end with kind of seven statements that we kind of created um, that would really, really make a difference. And and what I had said is that, you know, um, if families were in charge of housing, things would look different. And these are the seven things that I think that um, I have learned through our project with families that would make a big difference. So I said, if families were in charge of housing, first of all, uh, they would understand that housing, home and support are different things, you know, so that housing is just a structure. You know, and the Ministry of Housing or whoever looks after housing at federal, provincial and municipal levels can help all kinds of people achieve housing. Right. And that the support piece is probably the piece that does belong um, in part with the Ministry of Community and Social Services. But supports are both natural and paid supports and not just paid supports alone. And it's always that combination that will assure that people have a good life. And we've, in fact, come up with ways of planning support. So you start with the ordinary natural supports and then think of the time left. When does paid support need to be in place? And it's really changed our budget. So. So the first thing is that, that families would understand that home, housing, and support are three different things and best compl- uh, contemplated and achieved separately. That governments and funders and some of their funds might augment some of these, but they shouldn't control them on behalf of many people. Secondly, that uh, families would understand that most housing challenges for people with disabilities are affordability challenges, not disability challenges. And if people with disabilities were not living mostly in poverty and unable to afford even a basic rent, then their families would not have to juggle creatively to try to figure out their own housing first and then later on for this family member over time. Right. That's the, the affordability challenge. And thirdly, we understand that people with disabilities contribute to their neighborhoods and communities, and people with disabilities are not essentially a burden. Um, Families understand this hugely. Um, So they're not a burden, but full contributing member of the human family. And it is together that we find the gifts of one another and build rich, uh, diverse, tolerant, and resilient community. Uh, we un- uh, families understand that helping families and people with disabilities get good, decent, and typical home, housing, and supports doesn't mean taking away their control, authority, and autonomy. It does mean designing financial and direct supports in ways that augment and support natural family assets. And those would be like those portable subsidies I talked about, flexible direct support dollars, but also a little bit of supports for organizations like ours that would support the family um, to take uh, charge, but to give them uh, the feeling they're not doing it alone. Fifthly, we understand that families, that, that providing um, renovation dollars allows families to be creative with their home and space today in ways that will house other citizens in second apartments in the future. 
um, home renovations may stabilize the home for the person right away and in future maybe even allow a revenue stream for when their parents aren't there, like I just mentioned. Families understand that governments, funders, and planners need to stop building and funding old-style, high-profile, congregated mega-projects, which are sometimes just for people with disabilities, and sometimes people with disabilities are lumped in with seniors, people with mental health issues, or other homeless people. And we want funders to stop funding those mega-projects now. We think that these confuse new families, tell them that their family members can't take advantage of what is familiar and typical to us all in housing, and it makes them pull away from using their own creativity, assets, opportunities, and connections as the core of home and housing. Right, mm-hmm. It takes it right away from them. So we say, you know, you shouldn't be doing this for day supports like day services, and you shouldn't doing these mega-things for recreation And you shouldn't be doing it for respite, and you certainly shouldn't be doing it for housing, right? Mm -hmm. It just confuses the agenda that the the ministry is trying to set. So we'd like them to commit to only vibrant, diverse, typical housing options um, and and neighborhoods. And then the last thing we uh, were thinking is that um, there will always be families with a range of interest and ability in imagining better for a good life and community for their family members. And certainly there are some people with no family and no, at all and, and no allied connections. So we understand that for a period of time to come, there may well be a demand for services, for residential services and a, a service model. But where there are keen and hardworking, creative and energetic families who want to be in the driver's seat and who want to build this good life and community with their family members, there ought to be supports and rewards and resources for that. And that's what's not forthcoming. For the cheapest, most effective, most efficient, and most satisfying models, there are the least number of dollars, even if you do it in a ratio. And and I think that that needs to change. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it needs okay. to shift. And, yeah. Um, super grateful that you shared those insights <laughs> um, driven from families and, and, and sharing those with uh, yeah. with the audience and I think they're important for everybody to hear. One of the things that was connecting with me as, as um, you were speaking, Janet, is by designing your own solution, mm-hmm. you have control or more control and it's in the best interests of that individual. Mm-hmm. You're creating something that um, makes sense for for that person, which mm-hmm. I think is is really important. So I've got a couple more questions as, we, right. as we just wrap up the, right. the podcast here. And if you had a billboard that everybody in the world could see, what would you put on that billboard? Hmm. I might I might put Together we're better. Just the focus on partnership. I I might put um, when when we find ways in community to include people at the margins, we all benefit. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just um, it just seems to me such a waste of time, talent, and. You know, you know. Imagine your life without your sister, right? Right, and and you would, you would be a different person. And in some ways, I'm sure you think you'd be a lesser person, right? Mm-hmm. That she makes a, 
a contribution that can't be replaced by other people around. And how do we, um, how do we get other people to see that? And it's, um, a billboard is a darn good idea. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I've beautifully put and uh yeah sorry i can feel some emotion burning up inside of me as you um as you talk about that so um that's awesome so that's our show for today a big thank you goes out to janet cleese tiffany and linda daw sarida uh shirley brown donna mitchell Uh, I think that's everybody that we had on the podcast today. So uh, definitely a great uh, crew to uh, be able to connect with and to learn from. And I hope that you got a lot of value to the podcast today and got a better understanding of uh, intentional community and how intentional community has really thrived uh, at Rougemont. And I hope that you're able to to get an understanding of, of what that could look like and uh, just some different ideas on uh, on how it can really work. And I hope you got the building blocks of how you can start to create that own that, that intentional community in in your neighborhood, no matter what your neighborhood looks like. And as Janet shared with me, it's really about your mindset that you take into that. Uh, Linda Daw sharing about diversity, really starting with diversity uh, and leveraging the skills and talents and gifts of everyone in a diverse community. And the more diverse your community is, the more variety of, of talents and gifts that you have so uh, really some some wise valuable uh, lessons from from folks and I hope it also gives you an idea of how life can be ordinary incredibly ordinary for people with a disability um, and you heard from Donna and you heard a little bit from me uh, about Tiffany so I hope that um, that really helps to open your eyes maybe gives you a different perspective on on how things can be um, and, and how, how good a uh, life can be. If you want to learn more about Diohago and Rougemont and the story and to hear a lot of the rich stories that have gone on over the years, uh, at Rougemont, I encourage you to pick up Janet's books. Uh, the first one, uh, titled We Come Bearing Gifts. The second, Our Presence Has Roots. And you can check those out at diohago.ca. Uh, it's spelled D-E-O-H-A eko.ca and you can grab those there i've also included uh, a link in the show notes uh, to pick up those books and there's also some other great resources that i've shared uh, as well as the uh, website for uh, janet's organization where you can check out some of the workshops that they run locally Uh, also diohaga has uh, some great resources on their website and they also run tours uh, so you can actually go and check out at Diohago for yourself and uh, and feel the experience for what it's like to to be there. And if housing is something that you're working on, uh, feel free to go to the website and get the free download on creating your home. So there's this great workbook that's going to help guide you through creating your vision and starting to implement your vision for what your home looks like. So go on over to the website. It's empoweringability.org. And I think you'll get a lot of value out of that. 
I'd like to thank all of our listeners that have left us a review on iTunes. Your reviews help me understand what I'm doing well, what I can improve on on the podcast, what you want to hear. So it's great feedback that you're providing. So please continue to do so. Also, by leaving a five-star review, it helps other people find the podcast. So thanks so much for those reviews and keep them coming. Next week on the podcast, we have a parent, uh, Alice Mainland, and Alice uh, resides in uh, the small town of Stratford, Ontario, and she tells the story of her family and her son, uh, Michael, and she tells the story of how uh, her family helped Michael to create uh, the life, the full life that he's living now uh, in his own place with his own job and contributing in community. And kind of at the last minute, as Michael was leaving high school, uh, Alice and her family realized that there was the cliff approaching. So after school ended, uh, Michael would be, there'd be nothing for him. And they took some action on on you know creating that life for Michael after school, and we really get into uh, what worked uh, and how she did that. So, if uh, you're a family member, uh, a person with a disability, or a supporter uh, that has been in that situation, you're in that situation now, or you're really trying to create that life for yourself, uh, take a listen to the podcast next week. I think that you're going to really enjoy it. Thanks for listening today, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to today's podcast. Visit us at empoweringability.org for more podcasts and resources to help you and your loved ones impacted by disability live a full and meaningful life.